Well, welcome back. This is sort of Dear Baseball Gods episode 78. And if you haven't noticed, I've been conspicuously absent. I have not had a podcast episode up in two weeks. And I have a very simple answer why. I have been finishing my book. It has been an exhausting amount of work. I'm pretty much uh, mentally gassed. And I have to now narrate all 26 chapters, a couple of which are very long. They're really more like three chapters. So here's the thing with narration. um, And here's the thing with uh, what's happening at 1220 in the AM right now. I just recorded for three hours, narrating two long chapters. And when I was done, uh, I found out that I hadn't told my Adobe Audition recording software to use the good mic And so the whole time, it was recording on my computer's mic, which means the whole time, I was just wasting my time. I was just talking into my computer, and the audio is garbage. And the whole evening, I was like, why are my audio levels a little higher than normal? I keep adjusting the gain, and they're still getting louder. Why is this doing this? Uh, It was because I had the wrong mic plugged in. Well, my mic was plugged in, but my computer was the one taking in the audio rather than this beautiful Rode NT2A microphone. So I just wasted three hours, and they were actually a really crucial three hours because I'm traveling to Baltimore on Wednesday night, and I can only narrate this book on evenings after Warbird closes. We have a a little studio up here where it's very quiet. It's sort of soundproofed, and It has a room tone that is now unique to this book. So the way audio recording works is you don't really want to shift environments when possible, especially when doing something important like a voiceover, because when you hear me pause, you're not actually hearing silence, you're hearing room tone. And room tone is just a little noisier than silence because there's a, these, you know, almost inaudible buzzing of lights and just the way real life sounds. Now, if I were to actually delete the room tone, so when I'm not speaking, make it silence, which I'll do that in a second so you can hear it, it sounds markedly different. So there's a difference between room tone and silence. That's all you need to know. And so I'm going to go into silence right now. So it sounds probably a little bit different, right? Because I deleted the room tone in between um, my words. Anyway, I'm extremely angry at myself. I just wasted three hours. And the moral of the story is I can't narrate except from 9 p.m. on every night. And I'm going to be out of town for like a bunch of nights the next two weeks. And I can't just like catch up by doing 12 hours of narration because A, I would like mentally die. And B, your voice gives out. So you can only do like probably two hours a night, something like that. So uh, I would really love to karate chop this table and punch a hole in the wall, but I'm not going to. Uh, but anyway, so here are the announcements of this podcast. Number one, I am going on a sabbatical for the next three weeks. So you will continue to not hear the Dear Baseball Gods podcast until April 9th when the book is launched. So on Tuesday, April 9th, Dear Baseball Gods, the book will go live as a paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Uh, I will finish this audiobook before April 9th. 
you have, well, I'm not giving you my word, but I'm going to do my best to finish it. That being said, I have just been spread too thin to get a six-hour podcast on each week, which that's about the production time it takes me to get an episode out each week. And on top of that, my vlog, which is important to me, and then one to two pitching videos and or softball videos each week. It just ends up being a lot. I also have this academy to run, all these other things to do. So the thing that's going to be cut this week for the next couple weeks is the podcast. Now, I have really enjoyed the podcast. It's certainly not going away. I already have some guests lined up for when I return to it. However, for right now, I need to focus on getting to the finish line because I'm close. And with the limited availability of my pipes, I just need to spend them all on the audiobook. That being said, I just wasted three hours and uh, I just really want to headbutt something, but we're going to move past it. So today, what I have for you is a chapter of Dear Baseball Gods, chapter one. So uh, there is a prologue, but this is the first chapter. And uh, I'm not going to go into the story because you will listen to it. It's 20 minutes. And after that, there's 10 minutes of me kind of giving commentary on it. Uh, this was done as a video. So if you want to go to YouTube, you can listen to me talk to you for 30 seconds, then hear the audio, the exact same audio for 20 minutes uh, with no video. Well, in the same video, but there's nothing happening. And then uh, I give about a 10 minute commentary at the end. However, if you're in audio, if you're in podcast land, I've just taken the audio from that video and it is here for this week's podcast. So without further ado, uh, I would like to invite you to listen to chapter one of Dear Baseball Gods, whether you're a listener or a writer or a reader. If you want to read the chapter, you're welcome to do so on danblute.com. Uh, you're also welcome to do so on medium.com. I posted the same chapter both there. I've also embedded the video with this audio in it there. Uh, but since you're here and you're listening, you might as well just stay and enjoy chapter one from my book, Dear Baseball Gods. And I know that sounded like I was going, and I kind of was, uh, but stick with me. In a couple weeks, the podcast will be back. If you're not on my email list, I highly suggest you jump on it. I send out non-spammy emails each week. I just update everyone on my videos, on my new articles, on the new stuff that I do, the new podcasts. So if you're not on my newsletter list yet, you can find a description. Uh, you can find the link to join that in the description below, and that will keep you up to date with everything. And lastly, if you've enjoyed the podcast which if you're listening to episode 78 here, especially after two weeks off, uh, I'm assuming that you have, um, I'd really recommend you pull the trigger on my audiobook or the pre-order of the Kindle book, which will be on sale. Um, and obviously paperbacks are great too. You can do any of the three, but if you've enjoyed the podcast, you're really going to like the book. It's extremely, um, if there's one word, it's honest. And uh, there's, I can promise you this, You've never read a baseball book like it, and it's a lot less of a baseball book than it is sort of a identity and how we all sort of grow up in this world kind of book. It became very philosophical at the end, but I'm not going to go into it any further because I do so in the rest of this episode. Anyway, thanks for being with me. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you being patient with me as I try to stay sane through this process, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Dear Baseball Gods, Episode 1, or Chapter 1, from the book. 1. Dear Baseball Gods, I'm not a spectator. It was June 27, 2012, and I was in Rockford, Illinois. 
It was one of those days when the sun was impossibly high in the sky, taunting us with its inescapable rays. I always believed I would know when it was time to walk away from the game, and my inner monologue would spell it out like the Times Square ticker tape. Seeking relief from the sun, I sat cross-legged in the shade of what looked like a Christmas tree, inexplicably planted in the middle of an open field. I peered down at the wispy green grass, darkened as it too enjoyed a reprieve from the oppressive heat. Is this really it? Is this the end? Is it really my time? As I pondered my fate, I surveyed the fractured pieces of my baseball career, scattered around me like shards of glass. With too many to count and without any glue, my disappointment turned into sobbing. My sunglasses fogged, the rushing wind not enough to dry them. A month ago, the end was impossibly far off. It couldn't possibly be here by now, could it? Are you in a wind tunnel right now? I can barely hear you. I'm in the middle of a field sitting behind a tree. It's really windy. Well, what's up? Andrew asked. He definitely had never seen or heard me cry. So I attempted to respond. The words remained stuck in my throat. Uttering them would make it even more real. Get it together. You're tougher than this, aren't you? My eyes welled up and spilled over as I held my gray flip phone to my ear, waiting for the composure to reply. Andrew is my best friend, one of a handful of people who'd wished me well and shoved me off to sea when I signed my first pro baseball contract. I told them I wasn't coming home for a long, long time. The news had come moments prior during batting practice. I had been awaiting the results of my MRI, and the doctor finally got a hold of Liz, our athletic trainer. Liz and I were close. She had taken care of me that season in the training room, trying in vain to keep me on the field. I repaid her with snarky jokes that connected with her dark sense of humor. While I was out shagging BP with the other pitchers, she called me over to the dugout, this time with an expressionless face I rarely saw. The doctor's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. I sat down on the wooden dugout bench and took the call. Hi, Dan. Thanks for speaking with me. He told me his name, but I immediately forgot it. Hi, Doc. No problem. I appreciate the call. I listened, watching as our infielders cautiously fielded ground balls. The field had been baking in the sun and was, to put it lightly, rough. Balls were taking fast, unpredictable, aggressive hops, and the grass was parched, starting to brown ever so slightly. I was hot and thirsty. Everything, myself included, was overcooked. Dan, it was hard to read your MRI. To be perfectly honest, I've never read the MRI of a pitcher who's had a prior UCL reconstruction. Reconstruction of the ulnar collateral ligament, or UCL, is better known as Tommy John surgery, eponymously named after the first player to receive it, Yankees pitcher Tommy John. The pioneering Dr. Frank Job subsequently saved thousands of pitchers' careers with the procedure after Mr. John first agreed to be his crash test dummy. Hurlers were reborn thanks to Dr. Job, myself included. I had already undergone the procedure once, four years prior, in 2008. I was told I would never need it again. The problem is, he continued, that there's so much scar tissue from your first procedure that I'm not 100% sure of my diagnosis. But, I'm sorry to say, I'm 99% certain that you've ruptured your repaired ligament. I'm pretty sure that you'll have to go through Tommy John surgery again if you want to keep pitching. Ordinarily, I didn't trust doctors from small towns, and Evansville, Indiana was a small town. But this orthopedic surgeon, who I hadn't and never did end up meeting in person, was articulate and deliberate in his choice of words. He projected a voice that felt both empathic and kind. I trusted him. He hadn't just glanced at my MRI. I got the impression that he searched it like a maze, trying to find a way out for me. And I could tell that he was disappointed that he hadn't. I thanked him for the call and handed the phone back to Liz. I took a deep breath and walked back out to left field. This was my year. 
My first seven starts of the season couldn't have gone any better by any metric. I was leading the league with a 1.06 earn run average, ERA, along with a number of other pitching statistics. I had struck out 51 batters in 42 innings and was only giving up an average of three hits per outing. I was proud to be considered the ace of the Evansville Otters pitching staff, the first time in pro ball I'd earned such a distinction. In my second start, when I took a no-hitter through to the eighth inning, it was clear that the work I'd put in the previous offseason had paid off. My mind and body were in harmony as I executed game plans each night with an aggressive confidence. Soon enough, I would no longer be a lowly independent league player, and I could brush that pesky chip off my shoulder. I began seeing MLB scouts in the stands, Raider guns fixed on me. It was a season of redemption and newfound confidence, and with one phone call, it was all for nothing. It took a minute, but Andrew waited, patiently, in silence, to hear why I'd called him. I finally got the words out. My elbow ligament is torn. Again. The doctor called just now and said I needed Tommy John a second time. Jesus, dude. I'm so sorry. I sputtered and blubbered as I tried to dry my eyes. It's... It's okay. It was not okay. Andrew and I were best friends in preschool. When we graduated, however, we enrolled in different elementary schools and I didn't see him again after that. Later on, we only knew we were friends because our moms told us so. We moved on and lived separate lives, or so we thought. Over a decade later, I found myself sitting in a classroom on the top floor of the University of Maryland Baltimore County Athletic Center, waiting for orientation to start. It was the first official day for me as a Division I baseball player. Our coach took role, rattling off names from his list of 30 or so players. Finally, he got to mine. Danny Blewett? Here. A guy in the front row cocked his head around as if he was confused to hear my name. Andrew Sachs? Here. My head did the same sideways tilt upon hearing his. Wait, I know him. We're both on this team? We exchanged incredulous looks. Then, I spoke up. Do you know that we used to be best friends as kids? He remembered. Andrew is 5'10 with a wide back and a slight bow in his legs. Projecting a calm energy, I always found myself a little shocked at how quick he was when he'd take off into a sprint. I'm two inches taller, but he takes the crown as the better athlete. He's also more socially adept, in part because he'd jump right into a pickup basketball or football game and make friends through competition. I never cared much for other sports, pickup or organized, intended to keep to myself in my free time. I always needed a bit longer before becoming one of the guys, and I'll admit that I'm still not great at it. We decided to be roommates sophomore year and were assigned to a quad in a nice new dorm building. The connection we had as little kids apparently endured through 13 years of separation, leading us both to excel at baseball. We lived eerily similar lives in silent parallel. Just to cap off the weird coincidences, I was a pitcher and he was a catcher, which meant we'd be working together as battery mates on the field. What always united us, though, was our similar overall affect. Sitting around, we could be perfectly content to not say a word, neither of us feeling awkward or anxious about it. Andrew transferred a semester later. Playing time was in short supply, and he didn't see eye-to-eye with the coaching staff. He ended up finding a good fit at Frostburg State, a school up in the mountains near both the Pennsylvania and West Virginia borders. We talked only occasionally, seeing each other during winter and summer break. We could go six months without a word, yet pick right back up like we'd seen each other yesterday. Nothing had changed. Years later, when I had my first contract in hand, he was there to help send me off. I made my debut a month after that, and it meant everything to me. It was a combination of a million emotions, excitement, terror, nervousness, and elation. 
I had done it. When the game ended, I went out for pizza with my parents and my host family. As we waited for our two large pies, I got a call. It was Andrew. Hey man, I listened to your game. Five and two-thirds innings. I just wanted to call and tell you great job. Thanks, man. There was a unique inflection in his voice, a tone of pride and excitement that I had never heard from him before. His voice was different. Yeah, I just... uh, I'm just really proud of you, buddy. He called me at the beginning. I called him at what might have been the end. The four-year anniversary of my first Tommy John surgery was just a few months away. That day, August 25th, 2008, marked the end of my collegiate career. It's a simple, quick procedure in which the doctor first removes a tendon from a small, vestigial muscle in the forearm. Then, holes are drilled through two bones, the ulna, inside the forearm, and humerus, upper arm, after which the tendon is pulled through the bone tunnels. Once weaved through in a figure-eight configuration, the tendon is stitched and anchored, once again linking the two bones together. If all goes well, the tendon heals just as well as the native tissue that's snapped under the strain and stress of bases loaded jams, long toss sessions, and high pitch counts. I had never worried about my first surgery failing. I had one of the nation's best surgeons, had been diligent with my rehab, took care of my body, and did everything in my power to stay healthy. Yet here I was, nearly four years later, on the sidelines yet again, submitting to an arm that no longer worked. Since spring training, my fastball, a heavy four-seamer that sat at 91 to 94 miles per hour, had been dipping into the 87s by the third inning. My control slipped from good to average to poor. All of a sudden, I was walking six batters per nine innings, an abysmal doubling of the acceptable rate of three batters per nine. The version of myself that was blooming, about to get signed and do great things, was rapidly peeling away. I attempted to manage my arm troubles by not throwing between starts, thinking that I could get ahead of what we thought was severe tendonitis. A cortisone shot from a different team doctor provided a temporary masking effect, but eventually wore off. What was revealed beneath the worn-off medication was a season-ending injury. As I sat by that tree, I thought back to the words imparted to me by one of my mentors, Coach Fred Cantor. He was my strength coach in college and built me from a kid who had never touched a barbell into a force in the weight room. Coach, a heavyset, balding, former football lineman who was about as wide as he was tall, was hard on me. He had a quick wit, making jokes and snapping about technique corrections that were too lightning fast for anyone to respond to. At times, he was unrelenting, singling me out from across the weight room to, Get it right, blew it! while seemingly ignoring everyone else. He broke me down, but would build me up just before I hit my breaking point. It was a cycle that repeated for years, and I became tough, coachable, and resilient because of it. I later realized that he singled me out because he saw something in me and wouldn't let me slip through the cracks. I thought back to the time in college when I stood sheepishly in his doorway, hoping to avoid a conversation about how I'd blown a huge chance to earn a bigger role on the team. It was my sophomore year as I stood outside his office, leaning against the doorframe in my heather gray UMBC t-shirt and black mesh shorts. I looked down, watching my hard work pool, circle, then slowly flow down the weight room floor drain. Blew it! Come in here! Yes. I looked at him, expressionless, hoping I'd be shooed away as quickly as I was summoned. Tell me about the weekend. You pitched, right? I had indeed entered a baseball game, but it was unclear if the mess I had made would have been accurately described as pitching. It didn't go well, I said. I was supposed to go four innings but didn't make it out of the second. I chose not to elaborate further and turned my gaze back to my shoes. Ordinarily, a gap in conversation meant he'd fire off some joke at my expense. Well, Blue, I don't think it's the end for you. I looked up. With what you've done and your desire, I think the final chapters are yet to be written. 
He paused as I looked him in the eyes, taking in a deep sincerity that I rarely saw. I believe you'll come back from this. I really do. I nodded ever so slightly, glanced down at my strength program, and walked out to begin my workout. I had writing to do. Sitting in the shade of that tree in Rockford, I hung up with Andrew and called my parents to break the news. My parents were equally crushed by it as I hung up the phone for the final time that day. I was now alone and needed to do what I always did, sort things out in the silent confines of my head. I closed my eyes, hoping maybe I'd get lucky and open them, to find out it was all merely a nightmare. I then thought back to Coach Canner's words. I repeated them in my head. The final chapters are yet to be written. The final chapters are yet to be written. My final chapters are yet to be written. I opened my eyes. I was still beside that tree, still rooted in a horrible reality. I reached my back pocket and tucked Coach's words neatly inside. They'd be needed someday soon. I checked my phone for the time and realized I couldn't go back into the clubhouse looking like I had been crying. Guys would perhaps understand, but nonetheless it wasn't my intention to show weakness in front of them. It was 90 plus degrees and blindingly sunny, so I decided a good sweat would cover up my lack of composure. Rain and sweat could mask pretty much anything. Then I turned my palms up and looked at them, inspecting the calluses and fold lines. I had uneven gaps between my fingers from years accommodating a unique change-up grip, with thick yellow calluses resting beneath from nearly a decade of picking up heavy barbells. I'd done a lot with those hands in the last eight years. They'd served me well. I finally closed them, gathering up my destiny into my fists, and got up from beside that tree. I put my headphones in and jogged off down a dusty back road that cut deep into open farmland. Why is this happening to me? This is a bad dream. This can't be real. I don't deserve this. As I jogged, trying to make sense of it all, I wondered where you, the baseball gods, were at a time like this. You were supposed to protect a guy like me, saving a little magic in case one of their humble servants needed it. You could have helped the doctor find me an alternate route out of that maze of an MRI. I had been a pious disciple. I deserved better. Where's my good luck? When do I get a break? Why is it always me and never someone else? A second Tommy John? It doesn't happen to anybody. I swatted at the air in anger as I ran. I had been diligent. I had waited my turn. I had paid my dues and played the game the right way. I had scratched and clawed to earn playing time, suffered in the weight room, pushed through numerous little injuries and finally a surgery, then gritted through two hard years of pro baseball. This year was my year. It was all coming together. I was a leader, not just on my own team, but in the league as a whole. This wasn't fair. Why did you abandon me? I had turned 26 in December and did the math. I'd be 28 before I returned to professional baseball. 26 was already too old to not be in AAA or the big leagues. I had tools, an above-average fastball, a sharp power curve, and a changeup that had heavy sink and arm side run. I had the requisite ability, was learning to pitch and hitting my stride. I only needed an opportunity, but I kept hitting speed bumps. And now, here was this roadblock, an impasse that few found navigable. As I jogged deeper through the middle of nowhere, grain silos in the distance, a new voice began speaking up. Stop complaining. Stop whining. It's done. It's over. It's happening no matter how much you want to whine about it. You can moan and cry or you can do what needs to be done. It's not your time. You know better. Life isn't fair. You're tougher than this, aren't you? What happened to my arm simply happened and there was no finger to point. No one owed me anything. Maybe I had a defect in my arm, my mechanics, my pitching style. I didn't know. Regardless, I hadn't made it a habit of complaining about things beyond my control, so I certainly didn't need to start now. I berated myself a little bit more before acknowledging that making the best of it was all I could do. I was going forward, not backward. A half hour into my jog, I remembered that I hated jogging and slowed to a walk. 
My navy batting practice shirt was stuck to me, my earbuds fell out repeatedly, and I had built up enough sweat 20 minutes ago. I thought about Forrest Gump and the pain that turned him into a bearded, long-distance machine. Unlike Forrest, I wasn't running from my problems. I was running toward something. Clarity. I can do this. I believe in myself. I repeated it a few times as I started to run again, passing the barns and cornfields I had seen on the way out. The 50-foot lights from the stadium were only a half mile away now, and I had to return with a conclusion and some semblance of composure that I could wear the rest of the night. Two more years on the bench awaited when all I wanted to do was go play. But after purging some anger, shouting into the wind as loudly as I could, I was done. I was done feeling sorry for myself, well, mostly, and I was done whining. I was done sobbing and I was done looking at a glass half empty. Sure, there was not a drop of water in the glass at all, but it had been pretty darn full the last few years, even with setbacks and hard times. I started thinking about what would come next. Maybe something good could come of it. Maybe. I finished the home stretch as my feet burned with fresh blisters. It was nearing game time and players were streaming out of the clubhouse as I approached. I was no longer a part of them, no longer had a game to hustle off to, no longer ran with the herd on the rocky path up the mountain to the big leagues. Somehow, though, I'd catch up. I stalled a while outside, wandering off as I monitored the flow of uniformed athletes. Finally, ten minutes before game time, my chance came. I slipped in and sat down in our detached clubhouse. Clubhouses were supposed to be underground, connected to the dugout via tunnel. This one, though, was little more than a glorified trailer located way out beyond right field, beyond the stadium. Since I had been on the disabled list for a week, I was used to not having any real obligations and had settled on taking a personal day. Each game, two pitchers sat in the stands behind home plate. One did the radar chart and the other did the game chart. I enjoyed sitting in the stands in plain clothes and getting the straight-on view of each at-bat. From that point of view, it was easy to assess hitter tendencies, pitching strategy, and umpire competence. I was also away from the griping and negative emotion that was always present in the dugout. The team had been playing sloppy baseball of late, and there was currently an overabundance of negativity. I was going to be late to the game, that much I knew. It was hot out, so if I didn't sit and cool off for at least 15 minutes before showering, I'd be sweaty again in no time. I only brought one set of attractive street clothes per road trip, so a fresh coat of post-shower sweat wouldn't wear well if I sat in the stands in my jeans and polo. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Would I sit in the stands in street clothes with the rest of the spectators? Or would I uniform up and spend my night in the dugout? While I air-dried my towel, contemplating what seemed like a trivial decision, it dawned on me that my choice was perhaps bigger, a metaphor for my journey ahead. Would my future be watching baseball from the stands? Or would it be competing alongside my teammates in the dugout? I could say that I was too old, too fragile, and too tired. I could say that I'd given it my all and I just wasn't lucky enough. I could say that I'd been through the rehab once before and the road ahead was just too long to travel a second time. No one would argue. Or I could get the surgery, grind it out, force down the jagged pill, and rebuild myself one more time. Tossing my towel aside, I made my choice. I pulled on my compression shorts, then my navy blue socks. I took the gray baseball pants down off the hanger and stepped in, one leg at a time. I rolled up the bottoms until they wouldn't roll up any higher, which stretched and flared the leg openings, helping the pant cuffs to better fit over my shoes. I threaded the navy belt through each loop as I grabbed my maroon practice shirt and pulled it over my head. After partially zipping my pants so they wouldn't fall down, I removed my gray road jersey from the hanger, Evansville, stitched on the front in navy blue with maroon trim. I pulled it over my head and shook out the shoulders, adjusting until it hung just right. I zipped up and buttoned up, 
sprayed my loosely tied turf shoes with scrubbing bubbles, wiped them down and put on my cap. I walked over to the mirror and looked myself in the eye. A ball player looked back. Hey, welcome back. So obviously that was a tough day for me, right? But I want to tell you a little bit more about it. And I know the way I wrote the chapter almost makes it seem like that's the way I shaped it now, but it really was the way it all went down. And, and what I mean is the last decision that I had to make. So once I got the news from Doc, once I walked into the outfield, my teammates said, hey, Dan, you know, what's what's going on? I just couldn't even answer them. I just sort of looked at my feet and I just walked away because at that moment, it really hit me. And then for the rest of that afternoon, I was sort of off by myself. I, I ran out into the middle of nowhere and I was sorting out what I was going to do. And so once all my teammates cleared out the, the locker room and, and I was there by myself, it's easy to read this story and think like, oh, that's just the way Dan wrote it now. But that was really my frame of mind. I sat there and I didn't want to go in the dugout. I wanted to go sit in the stands. I wanted to be by myself. I didn't want to be around baseball because I felt like this zombie, like I was dead on that day. You know, I didn't have anything to look forward to. Nothing I did that day mattered. Nothing I did the next day mattered. Nothing I did for the next year mattered. And so I really just wanted to sit in the stands and I really didn't want to go to the field because how was I, how was I going to sit there and, you know, clap for my teammates and, and be a good teammate that day. But as I sat there, I really just decided that it was one of these two paths that I had to either make a choice today to be a civilian and to go out into the real world, or if I was going to do this, I was going to really do it. And so as I sat there, I decided that, yeah, like I'm going to Jersey up, I'm going to uniform up and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be in this dugout because I don't know how many days I'm going to get to be in a dugout. I don't know if I'll ever come back. So I can't waste a day in the dugout, even though it's going to be hard, even though I'm going to have to sort of just fake smiles and, you know, fake, fake cheering. And obviously you always try to be a good teammate when you're not playing your best and you're trying to bring other people down. But it was just such a tough day to just keep my head on straight and experience all of it as it was. And, uh, and Andy and Brooks did a good job just kind of like chattering with me that day. And I stayed close to the, to the coach's side because really at that point I became like an honorary coach and not so much of a player. So that day was a turning point. And so in my book, that's the first chapter. And then it starts back. It starts back. I, I tell you a little bit about my family, where I came from. And then it goes in chronological order, leading back up to that day in the middle. And then after that, down to the rest of my career and then to the grieving process, uh, which was the last third of the book. And as one of my editors noted, there's a big mood change and there's a big swing in me as the narrator throughout the book. And that's because when I wrote this, I was, I was grieving, I just retired and I was trying to write my story and also find closure in my life. And so I wrote a lot of the ending chapters first when I was going through it. And so the tone there is very different than the tone as I just sort of recounted all the things that happened to me. And then as I went back through it, this is the really fascinating thing that happened over the two year period that I wrote this book. Cause I wrote the first draft in about I don't know, something like eight or 10 weeks. Uh, but over the last year, and it was a two-year process, but over the last year, and then especially in the last three or four months, as I really went back through, I started to piece together these three different people that actually told this story. So there was the real Dan who went through all that stuff, right? There was the objective, like if you looked through a drone at what happened in my life, there was that view of it, which 
the, the version of me that went through it on those days felt a certain way about it, but the world never really got that point of view. There's a second version, which is the version that I reported home to. So as in 2012 and beyond, I was still with my academy and I started writing an email update every week called You're My Boy Blue. And that's, a, that's an allusion to the movie Old School. There's an old guy who's pledging to be in the fraternity. His name's Blue, he's this old, old dude. He goes, you're my boy, Blue. But that was my email updates that I would send to my friends and family. And I actually opened it up to my blog. Uh, any, any reader who wanted to sign up, they could back in 2012. So I had about maybe 100, 120, 150 people, something like that, that got an email from me almost every week saying like, hey, this is how I pitched. This is what's going on, blah, 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 blah. So I didn't think much of that until the end. And really through my, my third edit, I didn't think too much about those emails. And then as I started to need some details to make sure I had everything like statistically right and which were the what days did I do these things and was this box score correct, I started to go back through those emails. And what I found was a very different account of the things that I knew to be objectively true about my story and what happened. So there was this second version of myself who explained everything, who, who wrote home, giving them a different version of the events. And really it was this optimistic sort of glass half full, sort of like this, this thing happened, but I'm going to get through it and here's what I'm going to do and don't worry about me. And that really wasn't the way I felt in most of those situations, but that was what people got because I knew a lot of kids listened to it and I wasn't trying to just write home and just whine and complain. And for me, as I internalize things, they start to become rosier and more optimistic over time. Even though I'm naturally kind of a more of a cynical person, uh, I really do, I think, a good job of reframing situations, which you'll kind of find out in the book. And then so that was version number two, but then version number three was me today, the 33-year-old Dan who looked back at his entire career and knew the value of some of those situations. So that day in Rockford, when I blew up my elbow, what it meant that day means something very different than it means to me today. Obviously, it was devastating at the time and it had major ramifications for us in my career and where I ended up it was very different because of that day. But what I know now about who I am as a 33 year old man, and I'm still young, obviously, I had to sort of layer all three of those views to tell this complete story. So there was what actually happened, what I told people that happened, and now years later, what I know to be true about how those situations changed me. So as the story has evolved through the fourth and fifth and final edit, really there's more of that composite view of myself and trying to figure out who I actually was and, and some of the battles that I had with myself. You know, there's always been this voice in my head that's urged me to go forward. And on that day, it urged me to stand back up and stop whining and stop complaining. And I've spent a lot of time in the book trying to figure out who that voice was. Was it me or was it the person that I wanted to be? And so the more revisions I went through, the more the book started to coax out, I think, who I am as a person, not only as an athlete. It wasn't just a retelling of all these games and situations. It, it became a lot more than that, really about who I am and what I've experienced and, and how I grew trying to figure out who I was then and who I was going to be and, and what this whole thing was about. And the last big thing that I would impart on you is you're trying to figure out whether you want to spend your 12 hours listening to the audiobook version or spend your 
I don't know, do you read the same speed? Would it be 12 hour read? I don't know, 293 pages uh, reading this book. It's a lot of the things that most of us as athletes never tell anyone else. You know, even the people that I was closest to in my life, the people that I love the most, there was just too much backstory. There was just too much for me to wade through to say, this is how I'm feeling today. This is why it feels like it's crushing me or this is why I'm putting all this extra pressure on myself at the very end. It's because of all these years that came before it. And this is, this is what I really feel as a person when I pitch terrible for the fourth day in a row and I feel like I'm going to get released and I see, you know, my girlfriend and I know that if I get released, we're going to have to break up and I'm going to have to move away and all these other ramifications that are things that athletes don't tend to talk about. And so it's a very honest, uh, account of, of what it's like, not only on the field, but off the field, both as when we're healthy, when we're injured and the other people that surround us and support us, but are also subject to some of the collateral damage, um, mentally and some of the things that we as athletes can only internalize with ourselves and only empathize or sympathize with to other athletes. And so there's a lot of exploration of that in the book as well. So I hope you enjoy this sample chapter. If you're interested in reading or listening to the book, there are links in the description here on YouTube and there are links here in podcast land as well. And I'd love for you to give this story a try. And if it does mean something to you, I'd greatly appreciate you sharing it with someone else who the story might impact. And if you don't have anyone else who you think might enjoy the story, a review always goes a long way in convincing someone else on the fence to take a chance. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.